Thank you to the worship team. Again, um, good to see you guys this morning. Hope you had a great Christmas yesterday. It, it, um, it seemed good and right to me, a good and right thing for us to gather on Friday and celebrate the advent of Jesus, that time where we celebrate the, the arrival, the coming into the world of the Savior of all who believe. So we heard on Friday night, peace among those who believe in the Savior. And then it seemed right and good for us to come back together today on Sunday to celebrate the purpose for which Jesus came, which was to die and to be resurrected to new life. Probably just 33 short years after his birth, And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to celebrate that good and right thing through an ordinance or an activity that Christ Himself gave to us. And He gave us this activity for the purpose of remembrance, and that is the Lord's Supper or communion. This is a small meal in substance, but it is profound in meaning. It is probably one that those of you who are, who are believers, you have taken many times. And I, I don't know how you feel about communion. I don't know how you feel about the Lord's Supper. For some people, it is, I found it's what I would say easy. In other words, it's easy for them to connect with. Like it is meaningful to them. It is, it is spiritual in nature. There is worship that happens as they're taking the Lord's Supper. And there's others of us, and I probably would fall in this camp, who find it a little difficult. I understand what we're doing, but but sensing and seeing that as worship is not always easy, especially when you grew up in church and the Lord's Supper was the day they gave you the, they had the little crackers and the juice. I remember the first time that we ever took communion in a different way. We were in a Methodist church. I'd grown up Baptist and we were went to this Methodist church after we moved and and never seen communion done this way. You walked up to the front and you tore bread from a loaf. And I just, I remember walking up and I was in front of my parents and I remember being hungry and I remember grabbing as large of a handful of bread as I possibly can. And I remember my mom smacking me on the back of the head. And, um, but it was being offered. I don't know for you what you think of when you think of communion. If you would fall in that category where it is a beautiful, picture and activity of worship that you connect with or one that's a little bit more difficult. But I I hope today that it it is something, and I pray today there would be something the Lord would really help us with, really help us to be able to worship. When we take this meal, it is small in substance, profound in meaning. We take bread that has been torn to pieces. And Christ says that when we do that, it is a reminder to us that his body was gashed and pierced and put to open shame. And then we, what we do is we use juice and we pour juice into a cup. And Jesus said that would remind us of his blood that poured from him as he submitted himself to death. When we come and take this meal We do so knowing that even in our society, 
there are certain crimes that are deemed deserving of the harshest form of punishment. Life for life. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, any crime committed against the holy and righteous creator and governor of the universe is worthy of death. It's what we call sin. And in that vein, every one of us are guilty. We're all guilty of crimes against our creator and our sustainer. And therefore, we are all deserving of death. And that's, for some of us, maybe it's it's a fact that we grasp and we can understand. For others, it is difficult. We often think of the really bad people as those who deserve death. But not us. We're decently good, we think to ourselves. Yet the Bible says we we all stand before God as guilty. And because we've committed crimes against Him, we're all we're all worthy of death, deserving of death. But when we eat this bread and we drink this juice, what we're saying to ourselves and to God and to anyone who happens to see us doing this is that I trust that Jesus has suffered my fate for me. I trust that His body was torn and His blood poured out because He was willing to take my place. He was willing to stand before God and receive the punishment that was due me, and He was willing to do that in my place. And God the Father who planned all of this agrees. He agrees to receive the sacrifice of Christ as being enough for my crimes. God says that is sufficient. And so when we take this meal, there should be realization that there is nothing left for us to do to be accepted by God. Only to receive by faith what Christ did. And maybe there's no clearer way to display that reception and that receiving than to take in bread and to take in juice through eating and drinking. And we are receiving these elements into our bodies. And it is symbolic of the way that we are receiving Christ into our hearts by believing This morning as we take communion, our theme is from a verse found in 1 John 3. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there to 1 John, we're going to look at one verse and actually just the second part of the verse. But it's going to be our theme this morning as we take communion together. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And again, the in, in particular, the second part of verse 8. John writes this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the baby was born in a manger was to destroy the works of the devil. And John identifies, if you read in those surrounding passages in 1 John 3, John identifies the primary work of the devil to be sin. Anything that is an action or a thought or something that you meditate on in your heart that is disobedient to God's moral law, 
That is a crime against God and that is a sin. And that is the primary work of the devil. But at the same time, there we know there's a course of seemingly infinite consequences. An infinite number of consequences that are the result of sin. Sin creates creates chaos, and it creates various fruit, bad fruit. And any consequence that comes from sin would also be considered a work of the devil. Division, mourning and pain, hatred, abuse, rage, greed, pride, selfishness, All of those things are a product of sin, and therefore all of those things are works of the devil, and all of those things, and many, many more that I didn't list, are the works that Jesus came to destroy. And so this points us to something that we know. We know this in our minds, but we probably rarely think about it at Christmas. And that is that in all of the things that people could see, and on all the things that we celebrate at Christmas, there was a war raging in the spiritual realm that we could not see. All of the the things that we, we think and we celebrate, the peace of the silent night, the holy night, the calm, as we think of it at Christmas, In reality, in the world that our eyes physically cannot see, there was a war that was raging. And it had been raging. In which the devil was sinning out of his pride against God. And from the very beginning, he has been attempting to bring all the people of earth, those made in God's image, into his same place of rebellion. It has been His work from the very beginning to cause people to rebel against God. His aim was to have them follow His pattern. What was His pattern? To not trust God, to not submit to God, to not worship God. And He wants every person on earth to follow that pattern. And whether he has to use trials and suffering and difficulties or whether he has to use prosperity and good things on the earth to get people to not trust in God, to not submit to Him and to not worship Him, he'll use either as long as his aim in the end is to bring them to his place of rebellion. And so Jesus was sent as a baby to fulfill God's purpose and reverse that fate. For all who would believe. And what we see is this spiritual war playing out in our physical world. And we began to really see it in Matthew chapter 2. We are introduced to the Magi. We're not told a lot about them. They come from the east. We're not told how many, even though we, we have traditionally said three. Probably because of the three different types of gifts that were given to Jesus, but there were likely more than three. And regardless of what our typical nativity scenes show, they did not show up for a while. 
It may have been as long as two years after the birth of Jesus that these magi came. These men were likely scholars. We don't know exactly what their trade was or what they studied, but we believe they at least took some interest in the skies. And we know that they are led there by something that they had not seen before. A new star or a distinct star, something in the heavens that they had not seen before. And it inferred a message to them in their hearts that that star was connected to the coming King of the Jews. Now, we're not told how these Gentiles were familiar with Old Testament prophecy, how they would have known about the coming King, but we are told that they have come for one reason, to worship Him. An undetermined number of non-Jews traveling in probably a very large caravan, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, probably for two months or more, all to find this king and worship. Now we're not told in the Bible, and we don't really have a reason to believe that they understood the divinity of this king. That he was God. But this picture that we get in Matthew 2, the origins of these travelers from outside of Israel, and the extravagant gifts that they bestowed upon Him foreshadows the honoring of Christ by people of all nations. And so in all of that, what we see, this underlying miraculous force behind the star and behind the appearance of these Mysterious men is God Himself. And God is doing one thing, the same thing that He has been doing since that moment. He is bringing people to worship His Son. But there's another figure in Matthew 2. One who represents a part of the Christmas story that is not peaceful and not calm and not beautiful. And that figure is Herod. He's called a king. He was made king by the Roman Senate. And history outside of the Bible tells us he was a very cruel man. He was a cruel man who did anything that he could to hold on to his power. There is a story that he became suspect that one of his nine wives and her two brothers were treasonous. And we're doing something after his throne. And so he had them murdered. He was a cruel man. And so when he learns of this large group of wise men who've appeared talking about a king, when he sees the great links that they have gone to in order to find him and worship him, he is greatly alarmed. And he tells these men in deception... When you find him, when you find this new king, come tell me, because I want to go and worship him too. But we know that his actual intent was to find him and murder him. And that fact is made clear by what happens in the next part of Matthew. What happens when these wise men fail to go back to Herod after they saw Jesus? 
And so Herod orders the murder of every male child in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. Bethlehem was a really small village. They all knew each other. They all spent time together. And in that day, probably 20 to 30 families, 20 to 30 families had their children slaughtered by this man who was determined to find this king. What a horrible and unimaginable event. And you cannot read that and not see the underlying force behind Herod could only be the devil himself. The one who Jesus later affirms has come to kill and steal and destroy from all he can. And so what we know from this, this picture that we're getting on earth, of this spiritual war that we cannot see, is that the devil understood the purpose of Jesus. He understood that Jesus was here to destroy His works. And just like the spirit that was in Herod, the devil was doing all that he could to hold on to his power. But God protected Jesus. He told the wise man, don't go back to Herod. And before Herod ordered the murder of those children, he told Joseph, take his family and go to Egypt. A trip that was likely very expensive and probably funded by all of the gifts the wise men had given them. And so in this we see the provision of God, we see the protection of God taking care of His Son because He was taking care of us all who would one day believe in Him. He was ensuring the safety of Jesus. But only for a time. Because Isaiah tells us that it was ultimately the Lord's will to crush His Son and make Him an offering of guilt. For you. For anyone who would believe. He was born for that fate. He was born that he might die for your life. He was born to destroy the destroyer. He was born to kill the killer. He was born to steal from the thief. He came to destroy the works of the devil. When we were reading through Luke this last month, when we got to chapter 22, something stood out to me there. I was actually listening to it uh, on audio, and when I heard the words, it just jumped out at me. It's the moment where Jesus is arrested, and... 
he has an opportunity to address the chief priest and the officers of the temple. And he says something to them, which is very interesting. He says, this hour belongs to you and the power of darkness. The underlying force behind those men was the same underlying force that was with Herod, the devil. Except in that moment in the garden, God's hand of restraint had been removed. And Jesus began the process of willingly laying down His life. And in that moment, He looks at these men and He says, this hour is yours. This hour belongs to the darkness. The power of darkness, the devil, in that moment now had the advantage. For an hour. And then after that, no more. It is as if Jesus was saying in that moment, sin, you have an hour. Death, you have an hour. And then after that, He would rise. After that, He would rise and with Him would be the keys to the grave. And then He would ascend to heaven and He would promise a second advent. He came to destroy the works of the devil and that task was complete. And you and I are simply waiting on the final and complete application of what Jesus has already accomplished. So in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come up to this table with your family. Whoever you came with today, or if you see some people that you want to gather with, that is fine. But I want you to gather your whole family up and come up to this table one at a time. And, and when you get there, you're going to find some prepared bread in little bags. And so get one of those for each person who's going to take communion today. And, and I will be pouring cups of juice for you. So each person who's going to take communion will take one of those. And when you reach for that bag of bread representing that torn body of Christ, I want you to notice your hand is going to move over a Bible. And in that Bible, you will see highlighted that passage. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I just want you to have that image in your head. That you are taking that torn body of Christ to yourself. And in doing so, you are receiving the promise that darkness only had an hour. And Jesus has come to destroy the destroyer. And I want you to know that any darkness that you're dealing with, because every single one of us in this room, we're dealing with some work of the devil. In our lives and around us. But I want you to know any darkness that you're dealing with, has an hour. 
In other words, the time for that darkness is limited. The time for that work of the devil is limited. Because it is governed by a sovereign and powerful God who loves you so much that He planned to crush His Son as an offering for your guilt. So I want you to take that bread and that juice and as you take it and you take it into you, remember Christ. That He has come to destroy all that troubles you and all that torments you. And those elements that you take are a promise of victory. Many of the works of the devil in your life you will see removed on this earth. Many of them you will. But probably not all. But all of them will be vanquished in eternity. And that's the promise we look to. When you take those elements, I want you, if you will, to go back to your seats. If you want to gather up front, if you would prefer to do that, you can. But once you get back to your seats, I want you as a family just to pray together and then take communion at your seats. You don't have to wait on us. We're not going to direct it from up here today. If you're in this room, if you're a dad or a father, lead your family in communion. If you see someone by themselves, you invite them to join with you in taking this meal. And as you do that, I want to remind you of a couple of things. One is that this meal is intended for those who have believed upon the works of Jesus. And so if you have not received Him as Lord, if you have not submitted your life to Him, if you have not come to know Him in a personal relationship, then I would encourage you not to take this meal right now. But rather, use this time to pray and to ponder, and perhaps even today, to give your life to Christ. And if He moves on you in that way today, if there is something that He speaks to you about on that back table, there's some little connection cards that we had left from Friday. And you could fill one of those out and leave it in the offering box on your way out and just let us know. There's a place on there where you can say, I got something spiritual that I want to talk about or I want to submit my life to Christ or I want to be baptized and you can drop that in and we will get with you. I will give you a call this week and we will talk. I also want to remind all of us that this is a time to consider repentance of our sin. If you're a believer, if God has convicted you of sin and you have not yet addressed that sin in, confess, in confession, if there's just something going on in your life that you know that God is dealing with you, will, with you on, but you are not yet to a place of confessing that sin and repenting of that sin, you are holding back forgiveness or asking for forgiveness, you're holding back listening to God, then I would suggest you pray. And I'm not saying for you to not take this meal today. But I am saying that I think it would be good for you to prepare to come and take this meal by addressing that sin through confession. I don't believe 
as perhaps some people think or would suggest that you have to be in a perfect place of obedience to come and take this meal. As a matter of fact, I think if you waited for that moment, you would never take it. I do think if God has revealed something to you and is addressing a sin in your life and you're just not submitting to Him, that it would be the wise thing to discern your life and what He's saying to you in prayer before and as you take this meal. So we're going to play some music. Worship team's not going to come back up. They're going to participate with us. And what I would ask for you to do, wherever you are in the room, you can just go to the back and just make a line with your family up this aisle to the table. And you can wait you know, for it to, to clear out a little if you like and, and just come one family at a time. And as you do, remember the promises of God. Meditate on Jesus and meditate on His power to destroy the works of the devil for all who believe. Father, I thank You for this time together this morning to worship You as we sang and as we have heard Your Word read today and as we have pondered the spiritual war happening between Your kingdom and the kingdom of darkness And God, we are so thankful for what You have done for us. And God, even as I say those words, I pray that that is true. That the people in this room can say yes to that in their hearts. Yes, I am so thankful that it was Your will to crush Your Son. as an offering for my guilt. And that God, any emotion or feelings that we have toward that would not end in a place of us determining to do something for You in return, but rather we would know there is nothing we can do. You have done it all. And it is incumbent upon us to trust in what You've done. But God, that there would be gratitude in our hearts that would lead us to joyfully, gladly give our lives to Christ. And knowing the bleakness of sin, knowing the foolishness of where sin leads, that we would be determined to exert our will in the power of the Spirit to abide in Christ and remain with Him and walk with Him. That His life might be our life. That He might speak to us and that we might obey what He says. That more and more we might lay down the sin that He came to die for and more and more we might see the fruit of righteousness and peace and holiness, goodness in our lives. 
and that we might become walking mediators of peace. Looking for every opportunity to share Jesus with someone. And knowing what that would look like. Father, this morning, let us worship in communion. Please grant us the spiritual eyes and ears and mind to be able to truly worship, taking in the broken body and poured out blood symbolized through bread and juice of Jesus. Let it be very meaningful to us, God. And wherever we are dealing with darkness and the works of the devil or those around us, let us today be filled like bread filling our stomachs. Let our spirit be filled with trust and knowledge and belief and faith that you are destroying, that you have destroyed the works of the devil and you are applying that to our lives every day. And that we can have faith that we're going to see much freedom and many works gone in this life. Many works of the devil vanquished in this life. And then one day, all of them. When we see you face to face. Let us trust in that and believe in that today. Help us to worship. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. They're going to play some music from the booth. I'm going to begin to pour the cups. If you will, you and your family, please come and let's worship together taking communion.